0: Uh, so we are going to be in Romans eight, twenty-nine, and 30 tonight, and I'm, I'm excited. Uh, let me pray, and we will jump right in. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this opportunity to dig into your Word. Father, we thank you that your Word is a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. We thank you that by your Word, we know you, we know truth, and you have specially revealed yourself to us in your Word. Father, we thank you that your word is clear. We don't have to wonder or guess. We thank you that your word is consistent from Genesis to Revelation, not contradicting in any points. God, we thank you that by your word, we know the gospel clearly, which is the power of God unto salvation. We thank you that you are the God who saves. And we thank you that we are your children by grace through faith. Teach us now as we look into your word. Give us a gripping attention. Help us to pay attention. Help us to grasp these deep truths in your word, we pray. In Jesus' name, everyone said? Amen. Amen. All right, so this, these verses, Romans 8, 29, and 30, have been called the golden chain of redemption. And they are, if you will, like links in a chain, each one building on top of, of the other. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son. And those whom he predestined, he called. And those whom he called, he justified. And those whom he justified, he glorified. Each of those, if you will, theological realities linked to one another in an unbreaking chain, beginning in eternity past and ending in eternity future. This is also called uh, the Order of Salvation, or in Latin, it's famously called the Ordo Salutis. Uh, I've flipped the title for this um, message, and it's Salvation's Order, or what is the Order of Salvation? Now, why would you be interested in the Order of Salvation? Well, because you need to feel emotionally, and you need to know theologically and you need to know biblically that you are safe and secure in Christ and that you will not be lost for eternity. You need to know that. My, my view is that every Christian and every maturing Christian needs to be secure in their faith, securely hidden in Christ, and not fearful on a regular that they are going to lose their relationship with God. Now, the Bible is very clear that you cannot lose your salvation once you have it. The, these two verses, I would argue, are the most clear place in all of the Bible where we can see this truth. Romans 8:29 and 30. The golden chain: link, 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 eternity past to eternity future. Now I'm going to read you Romans 8:29. In addition, I'm sorry, Romans 8, 28, in addition to 29 and 30, I'm not going to preach on 28 because Eddie did a great job last week of preaching on that. If you missed it, go back on the website, uh, eternalcity.org, and listen to last week's message. The YouTube channel also has Eddie in person in the flesh, digitally in the flesh. Uh, You can watch him uh, online. So let's read together Romans 8, 28 through 30. And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who were called according to his purpose, for those whom he foreknew he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers, and those whom he predestined he also called, and those whom he called he also justified, and those whom he justified he also glorified. now Romans 8:28 I think is, outside of John 3.16, probably the most famous verse in the Bible. Everyone knows this verse, and there's a reason everyone knows this verse and loves this verse, because it is our, if you will, anchor in the storm. It's a shelter when all is falling, when your life is in chaos, and trials and trouble and pain and suffering hit. We can look to a promise like Romans 8.28 and be encouraged. We know that God works all things together for good. The all things does include all things, even the bad things. What I want you to know about this verse, though, is it doesn't mean that the all things that God works together for good are good. They can be very bad things, sinful things, things that God will exercise his wrath towards, but yet he will still work them for good, ultimate good, ultimate glory. And he does this working of all things for good, for those who love God and who are called according to his purpose. And then verse 29 starts with a for or a because. Those whom he foreknew, he also predestined. Now, two big words already in Romans 8.29, to foreknow and to predestine. So we're going to start here. Okay, to foreknow can be used in knowing something beforehand. That word can be used that way. Okay? So we can know before the snow is coming that it's coming because we have good radar and we can see storm systems blow in and we can watch the temperature and we can foreknow the weather patterns because of our radar and because of our weather technology. This verse is not talking about foreknowing information or choices or situations or circumstances. How do I know that? Because look at the context. It says for those whom. The whom is a person. And so the foreknowing is in relation to people. Not choices, not events, not like prophecy predicting what will happen, but this is knowing beforehand individuals, people. And this is not a foreign concept in Scripture. In fact, Genesis 4, 1 and 2, now Adam knew his wife, Eve his wife, and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, the again is she knew or he knew her again, and she bore his brother Abel. Now, the foreknowing here is foreknowing in an intimate, loving, close relationship. Those whom God knew beforehand in a loving, close, intimate, covenant way, that's the way that Romans 8.29 is using foreknowing. This is used in a similar way with Mary and Joseph. When Joseph, this is the, the adopted father of Jesus. This is just after Gabriel comes and meets Joseph in his dream. Joseph awoke from sleep. He did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but knew her not until she had given birth to a son. And he called his name, Jesus. So to foreknow somebody is to know them Beforehand. Before what? Before their existence. How do we know that's what it means? Because of the next word. He foreknows and he predestines. To predestine is to literally predetermine destiny. That's what that means. And so here we have in eternity past, God chooses to have a loving relationship with individuals before anything is even created. And you say, well, how do you know that? Well, because there are other Bible passages that say that exact thing. Ephesians 1, 4 and 5 says, even as he chose us, us as the Christians, that he is God, even as he chose us in him, that's in Jesus, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us, same word as in Romans 8.29, same Greek word, predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of whose will? His will. Then if we were to jump down to verse 11 of Ephesians 1, we read this, in him, the him is Jesus, in him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him, who works all things according to the counsel of His will. You see, in Ephesians 1, it's all about God and His purposes and His will. In Romans 8, 29 and 30, it's all about God and His purposes and His will. Watch this. Those whom He foreknew... He predestined, jump down to 30. Those whom He predestined, He called. And those whom He called, He justified. Those whom He justified, He glorified. Where are you? You're just being done to. (laughs) You are the object of God's purpose in this verse. You're passive. Notice that. It's clear in the text. You are passive in this text. You're not choosing. You're not responding. You are simply being done to according to God's will. That's important to the context of this verse. He, 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 he. You're the object of God's action in this verse. So those whom he foreknew, he predestined. What did he predestine those whom he foreknew to? this is beautiful, to be conformed to the image of his son. So the Romans 8.28, the good of Romans 8.28 is actually in verse 29. The good is that you would ultimately look like Jesus. That's the good that God is ultimately working. All the troubles, all the trials, all the struggles, all the pain, all the frustrations, all the walls you hit are all purposed by God to make you into an image of Jesus. Now, if you're not familiar with the Gospels, my encouragement would be go to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and just look at Jesus. Look at his character. Look at his quality. Look at his intellect. Look at his creativity. Look at the way he cares for people. Look at the way that the most broken of society, the outcasts and the rejects are attracted to him. Look at the way he has compassion on large crowds of people because they're like sheep without a shepherd and he takes action towards them. Look at the way he sees people weeping and he enters into the suffering. Look at Jesus and see the beauty. God wants to make you into that type of person. Look at the way he answers his critics and they are silenced. God wants to make you into that kind of wisdom. God wants to make you into you, but you that looks like Christ. Now, what Jesus is not trying to do, what God the Father is not trying to do, what the Holy Spirit is not trying to do is make clones of each other. No, you will actually become more you and more individually you the more you look like Jesus. We are worldly before we are regenerate, before we are born again, before we have a new heart. When we get a new heart and we are regenerate and we are born again, the true self begins to emerge. And only as we look more and more like Jesus do we become more and more an individual glory, which is the last stage of redemption, glorification. And so don't imagine that being conformed to the image of Christ means you got to dress like everyone else and think like everyone else and talk like everyone else and exercise your spiritual gifts like everyone else. No, God is so interested in a unique you that he built you just like he wanted you on purpose. And he doesn't want you to copy anybody else's style, or the way they do Christianity, or the relationship they have with God. God wants to have a relationship with you uniquely. He doesn't want to have a relationship with you the way so-and-so has a relationship with him, because he wants to have his own relationship with you. And he wants to make you into a version of Jesus that doesn't look like anybody else. Now, we'll all be loving, We'll all be patient. We'll all be kind. We'll all be full of the fruit of the Holy Spirit. But the way that Eddie is displaying love is going to be different than the way I display love. Because we're all different. And that's a beautiful gift to God's glory. So what is God doing? He is predestining us to look like Jesus. And he's working all the events, the good and the bad in your life into that big purpose. So when you ask the question, which I know you do, because I ask it, God, what are you doing? Sometimes out of deep frustration, you have an answer. Yeah, it's an umbrella, big overarching answer, but it's an answer. He's making you into the image of Christ, character and quality. And that's a beautiful thing that he is accomplishing. Now, what will this do to Jesus? Will this diminish Jesus? If Everyone is looking like him. I mean, isn't he supposed to shine? No, we don't diminish Jesus by reflecting his glory. He, he gets more glory. In fact, this is what the rest of the verse says. In order that he, Jesus, might be the firstborn among many brothers. Now, what the cults will like to do is take a verse like this or take Colossians 1 and say, see, Jesus was a created being. He is the firstborn of all creation. God brought him about first before he created anything else. In fact, if you read John 1 and and Colossians 1, it's God who birthed Jesus first and then through Jesus he created everything else. That's not what firstborn means in this context. Now, when you look at the Greek word, this Greek word is largely used in the New Testament and sometimes it does literally mean the firstborn in a family. But that's not the context here. So what is the context? Well, let's look at it in another sense in two other passages very quickly. Hebrews 12, to 24 says this, but you Christian have come to Mount Zion. That's where uh, the temple was, the holy city, the eternal city to be, and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, To innumerable angels in festal gathering, that's a celebration, a party. And to the assembly, the word is ekklesia or church, it could be translated church. To the church of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven. So the church of the firstborn is the church of Christ. And we are coming to that party and we have an enrollment in heaven. Isn't that Interesting. So when you show up, you're kind of on the guest list. Foreknown, predestined, before the foundation of the world. And to God, the judge of all. And to the spirits of the righteous, made perfect. So I I just had a conversation with a gentleman uh, in counseling this past week. And he said, so if we die, our spirits just go to sleep, right? And then we wake up when it's time for judgment. I was like, no, not really. Uh, This text says... The spirits of the righteous made perfect. That means those who have died, their spirits are with God now already, though their bodies are here awaiting reunion and resurrection. And so if you were to die tonight and you're a believer in Jesus, your spirit or soul interchangeably would go to be with God. And as Ecclesiastes says, and your body would return to the dust from where it came. One day to be reunited body and soul. And so, you have come to the spirits of the righteous made perfect. In other words, where do we go when we die? We go to be with God. We go to be with these partying angels. We go to be to the enrollment of heaven. We go to the gathering of the firstborn. And to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. It was Tim Keller who said, uh, Abel's blood cries out for justice, but Jesus' blood cries out for our acquittal. It's a better word than the blood of Abel. Jesus' blood cries out for our forgiveness, not justice and judgment. And then in Colossians 1, 15 and 18, we read this, he, Jesus, Is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Now, that word there means the head of, the preeminent one. It means he's the supreme one. He is the prototokos, is the word. And it means preeminent. He's the first, he's the most glorious over all creation, for all things were made by him and through him. And without him, nothing was made that was made. And verse 18 says, and he, Jesus, is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead. So in this sense, he is the first one to receive a resurrected body as a human being. He's the very first. He is the, actually the only one in heaven right now that's physical with a spiritual, resurrected, physical body. We don't know what that body is, but we will get one. He's the first, and we are coming after him. That in everything, he might be preeminent. He is the first. He is the head. He is the supreme one. We come after him. He is the first rank of importance. That's what it means. That he might be the firstborn among many brothers. So what's the sense? The sense is that he is the first one to get a resurrected body. And we as his brothers and sisters are coming along behind him. And he is the preeminent one who has this resurrected body. Jesus is in a class of his own. He is the God man who is truly God and truly man, 100% God, 100% man, the hypostatic union. There is no one else like him. He is the firstborn, the one who receives the inheritance. What's his inheritance? The universe. God has put everything under his feet, Corinthians 15 says. The only thing that God did not put under Jesus' feet is the Father himself. Everything will be subject to Jesus with the exception of the Father. That's what 1 Corinthians 15 tells us. And so this is the sense of being the firstborn among many brothers. He went before us. He went into the grave before us. He resurrected out of the grave before us. He has paved the way into God's presence through the curtain of his flesh, Hebrews tells us. And now through Christ, we get to be with God, with the angels, with the saints already perfected. Their spirits are awaiting their body. And Jesus has gone before us. And if we die, we will go and be with him as his foreknown predestined children, or brothers, I should say, God's predestined children. Verse 30, and those whom he predestined, he also called. Now, called is a word that is used many times throughout the scriptures. And sometimes it literally means to call somebody. Hey, sometimes it's, he will be called and then a name. Okay? And then sometimes in the text, it means a summons that you cannot resist. Sometimes it means a summons that you can resist. Like many are called, but few are chosen. That called you can resist, and many do resist. But this called in this text cannot be resisted. This is what we would call irresistible grace. You can stiff arm God up until the point where he says, no more. And then you cannot resist his grace that hunts you down. Now, I'm going to use strong language here because the Bible uses strong language here. Okay. Called is not a weak term that means Some evangelist or some preacher or some book or some track told you, come to Jesus. That's not the call. That's the general call that does go out to all people. And we are to give that call to everyone and anyone. This call is more direct. This call has the authority of the universe behind it. The one who is omnipotent, omnipotent, all powerful. You can't resist when he calls. Now, how do we know that you can't resist when he calls? Because look at the context. Always look at the context. There's a foreknowing, knowing beforehand. The knowing the person beforehand causes the predestination. The predestination causes this calling. And everyone who is called is justified. Justified is a word we'll get into later, but it means you're not guilty anymore. So everyone who gets this called is no longer guilty. That means it's effective. That means that in between calling and justification is a word that Romans likes to use a lot, and it's faith. We are justified by faith. In other words, those who are called exercise saving faith. But notice, that's not in there. That's just assumed. Because you exercise faith, but it's the calling that causes the faith. All right, let's get into it. 1 Timothy 6.12. Now, Timothy was a pastor. He was at Ephesus. He was Paul, the apostle who wrote the, the, the Romans letter. He was writing pastoral encouragements to Timothy, 1 and 2 Timothy. Look how he uses the word here. Fight the good fight of faith. Timothy, fight this fight of faith. It is a fight. It is a war at times. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. So this calling caused eternal life. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you then, after being called, made the good confession. Remember, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart, God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Romans 10, 9 and 10. This is making the outward profession of faith. But the profession of faith comes from the calling. See the order here? And you did it in the presence of many witnesses. Now, look at 2 Timothy 2, 8 and 9. Therefore... Now, verse 7 is one of my favorite verses. It's that verse that says, God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power, love, and self-control. Therefore, because of that, do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord. Do not be ashamed about Jesus, nor of me, his prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. Now, look at verse 9 who saved us and called us to a holy calling. Not because of works, but because of His own purpose and grace. That sounds a lot like Ephesians 1. We are predestined because of the purpose of Him who works all things together according to the counsel of His will. We were called to a holy calling. What's the holy calling? To believe and to belong to God. In addition, especially for Paul and Timothy, we were called to be his ministers, which is also an effective call that you can't break out of. But we know it's not talking about being a minister because of the next verse. Look at the context. Not because of our works but because of his own purpose and grace. Grace is unearned, undeserved, demerited favor, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. Greek, before times eternal. So the calling was Timothy's before times eternal. The uh, grace, which is right there in verse 9, was given in Christ when? When did Timothy get this grace? Before time's eternal. Foreknown, predestined, called. So we know that the called here in 2 Timothy 2, 8 and 9 has to do with salvation, and it has to do with effective calling, which actually produces the purpose for which the calling came, because it was given before the ages began, before the foundation of the world in the language of Ephesians 1. Now, John 6, I think, is one of the clearest places we can see this. Now, in John 6, remember the context. You gospel lovers, you gospel of John lovers. Jesus has just fed 5,000 men plus women and children. Jesus has made his way to the other side of the lake. And now it's morning, the day after the feeding of the 5,000. And that crowd has migrated to the other side of the lake and they want breakfast from Jesus. They get into this interesting conversation where they're like, Moses made it rain manna for 40 years. You can do it again, can't you? You can feed us again. You did it yesterday. Hey, Moses did it for 40 years. And then Jesus says, look, Moses didn't do it for 40 years. It was God who fed your fathers in the desert. And then he says this crazy thing. The flesh of the son of man is true food. And my blood is real drink. And you can see this crowd just being like, what in the world is he talking about? (laughs) He just blows their mind intentionally. And then he like mic drops and doesn't explain himself. He's just like. And, and they, you can tell they're upset because they begin to grumble, they begin to complain. Who is this man who can give us his flesh to eat and his blood to drink? So that's the context: complaining, grumbling. Who do you think you are? Verse forty-one. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, "I am the bread that came down from heaven." They said. Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph? Like, wait a minute, we know his dad. How could he say he came down from heaven, like the manna? Whose father and mother we know, how does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered, Do not grumble among yourselves. So get the context of John 6, 44. Grumbling, unbelief, complaining against him, and then Jesus gives an answer for their grumbling and complaining. No one can come to me. Can is an ability word. I can or cannot breathe underwater. And unfortunately, I cannot. I can or cannot fly without a hand glider or the aid of an airplane or a helicopter, or some other device. I cannot. I cannot survive for years, or even a year, or even months without food. I cannot. So this is an ability word. No one can, what, Jesus? Come to me. Wait, didn't Jesus say at one point, come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Rest for your souls. And the answer is yes. He said that. That was a general call. Many are called. Few are chosen. Jesus said to the disciples, you didn't choose me. I chose you. And so here he says, no one can come to me unless, there's the qualifier, unless something happens. What needs to happen? The Father who sent me draws them. And the ones who are drawn, look, I will raise him up on the last day. That's a guarantee. Now we can go a little further in John six. We don't have time to do the whole context, but now they're really upset at him and they have, they're walking away. They're leaving him physically and look at 64, but there are some of you who do not believe. Context, unbelievers. There's some of you who don't believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him, Judas. He knew all along when he chose Judas that he was an unbeliever and going to betray him. He knew it. And he said, So what we have here is, there are some of you who don't believe, quote, and then John's going to tell us a little bit of insight. See the brackets? For Jesus knew, it's commentary, for Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe, unbelievers, and who it was who would betray him, Judas. Back to what Jesus says. And he said, this is why I told you That no one can come to me unless, qualifier, it is granted, given, gifted, by the Father. Now, that word draw is a little weak in this rendering. Because look how it's used in Acts 16 and 19. This is Paul in Philippi. And the crowd is mad at him. But when her owners, he just cast out a demon out of a slave girl, and now they have no hope of making money from her anymore. They are upset. But when her owners, the owners of the demon-possessed girl, saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and drew them into the marketplace before the rulers. That word dragged is the same Greek word as draw. Acts 21, 30, Paul's at the temple. He is uh, about to get mobbed. In fact, there's a whole crowd mobbing him. Then all the city was stirred up. They were stirred up because they saw uh, a Gentile with him and they thought that he had taken this Gentile into the temple. And the people ran together. They seized Paul and drew him out of the temple. And at once the gates were shut. No, they dragged him. It's the same Greek word. Now, it's a little soft in John six forty four, but that's the word. Do you know where else this word is used? It's used when uh, Jesus is telling the, uh, the disciples to drag the net of catch into the boat. And you think about that struggle, an overabundance of fish that is sinking the boat. What are you going to do to that net? You're going to heave on that thing. You're going to tug on that thing. You're going to wrestle with that thing. The fish are alive. They're flop, flopping around. My point is, the word draw in John 6, is a very intense word. That's what needs to happen to you. It was C.S. Lewis who said in Surprised by Joy that he, the night he was born again, Paraphrase, was the most reluctant convert in all of England. In other words, God brought him in kicking and screaming. And this is what happened to you. Now, you might not have experienced it as a violent act of being drug you know, by your neck and you're like, no, you know, but here, here's the deal. In John 3, uh, 19, Jesus says this, he says, men love darkness rather than light. And they will not, they will not come into the light for fear their deeds will be exposed. Then verse 20 says, so those who do come into the light show what has been done has been done by God. This is the deal. We are so in love with our sin as unbelievers, and we are so protectant of our sin and our sinful lifestyle that we will not come to Jesus who is the light because we don't want to give up our sin. We don't want to repent. We don't want to come out of the dark. And so God reaches into the dark and says, you come out. And listen, it's, he's, doing, he's doing no one wrong by letting them stay in their willful sin. Everyone who chooses to sin is choosing by their own free will. Everyone who, stiffs arm, who stiff arms God and says, I will not come to you, is doing that by their own free will. But that's not exactly true of those who come to him. If they were given their own quote-unquote free will, they would stiff-arm him. He must reach in and effectively, powerfully pull them in. Now he does this graciously. In fact, we can see this in the book of Acts. We were talking about uh, the slave girl who had her demon exercised and she became a believer. Well, this is another story in Acts 16 of Philippi. And you have this woman who's a dealer in purple cloth. Her name is Lydia. Let's read about her getting drawn. It's not violent at all. And so this is Luke giving us a very simple story. It's a narrative, but the call is here. Look, on the Sabbath day, we, this is Luke and Paul and others, we, including himself, went outside the gate to the riverside where we supposed there was a place of prayer. And we sat down and spoke to the women who had, came, who had uh, come there together. One who heard us was a woman named Lydia, from the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple goods, who was a worshiper of God. These are Gentiles who worship Yahweh, but they're not Jewish and they're worshiping in a non-Jewish way. Gentiles who are worshipers of the true and living God. The Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what was said by Paul what was the result of that? And after she was baptized. Now we know that in the New Testament, especially in the book of Acts, no one is baptized without having believed and made a clear profession of faith that the person baptizing them doesn't think is the real thing. That was already established in the previous 15 chapters. Remember Pentecost? 3,000 added to the church and baptized in one day. And so here, the way that Luke describes the call of God is simply the Lord opened her heart to pay attention to what Paul said. What did Paul say? Paul said the same thing he says every time he goes into a synagogue or meets a group of people. He tells the gospel. And so through Paul's telling of the gospel, what happened to Lydia? God drew her in. He pulled her into the light. Luke describes it as he opened her heart. This is consistent with the rest of Scripture. Ezekiel 36 says, The Lord will take out the heart of stone and give a heart of flesh. And what will that do? That will cause love for God and obedience. That's the new covenant. We're in the new covenant here in Acts 16. And so this is God through Paul calling to Lydia. God called through the call of Paul. Friends, that's the same way it works with you. When you share the gospel with your friends and family and coworkers and neighbors, maybe, just maybe, God will call through your calling. That's how God works. He doesn't call minus The gospel. We'll get into this in chapter 10. How will they believe if they've never heard of him? And how can they hear unless someone is sent to preach? They have to hear or read the gospel and God calls through that word. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes. So let's talk about belief. And those whom he predestined, he called. And those whom he called, he justified. Now, we know that justification is always a result of what? I said it earlier. Faith. We're justified by faith and not works. And so, where is faith? Well, it's hidden, but it's there, isn't it? Because the rest of Romans chapters one up until eight, shows that we are saved by grace through faith, that we are justified by believing. We are credited the righteousness of Jesus by trusting or believing. And so what does the call do? The call creates new spiritual life. This is the way Ephesians 2 says it. You were dead in your trespasses and sins, but God made you alive, drew you The call was effective. You were born again. You were regenerate. You were alive. (gasps) You breathed spiritually. And you know what your first exhale is? Faith. Belief is a gift. Belief is not something you exercise and then God rewards you with salvation. No one's going to show up on judgment day and God's going to say... You believed, and you believed, and you believed, and you believed, and... No, all glory to God. We believe because we are given the gift of faith. Where do you see that? Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. Make it as crystal clear as could be. For we are saved by grace through faith. And this is not of your own doing what is not of my own doing this pointing to the grace and the faith we are saved how by god's grace through our faith and this pointing to the grace and the faith is not of your own doing then what is it it is a gift of god why so that no one can boast that's it And the Bible is consistent from Genesis to Revelation, but I only have three minutes left, and so I can't go and go and go. And so, what does it mean to be justified? It means that God, in a forensic way, says, not guilty. You are guilty, but because you're united to Jesus by grace through faith, I declare you not guilty on the basis of Jesus' not guiltiness. You are 100% not guilty before me in my court. How do we get that? By grace through faith. How do we get the grace through faith? Called. How do we get the call? Predestined. How do we get predestined? Foreknown. When does that happen? Before the foundation of the world. That's what it that's what it says. I just read the text backwards. That's all I did. And so what happens? So if you want to dig into justification, we've preached on justification about six times in this series. Just go back in the series to Romans 3, starting at 21 into the middle of 4. You can hear a justification again and again and again and again. And those whom he justified, he glorified. Glorification is that last stage of justification. Death and your spirit and your body are reunited. But it's not just your, your body and your spirit are reunited. The whole creation gets resurrected. That was two weeks ago. Remember, our sufferings are not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed in us and to us. And so the glorification is you will be new and resurrected like Jesus is currently. He's the firstborn. You're coming after him in his trail. He went ahead of us and we will follow him. Now, with 53 seconds left, I'm going to show you a few verses about, okay, if this is true, if it's from the eternity past to eternity future, then what do I do about all my friends And people I don't know who are famous who have left the faith. What about them, huh? That's a good question. And I and I struggle with that as well. Because I have friends who were very dear to me, who I've done ministry with, like intense ministry, who are no longer believers. In fact, would say they hate God. And I'm like, what happened? Oh well, they lost their salvation. It's not the way the Bible teaches it. The Bible would teach that they actually never had it to begin with. And so, can I get five more minutes of your time, please, just to argue this point and then we'll quit? All right. All right. Everybody but Pete said okay. So, Pete, you're (laughs) outruled. Sorry, brother. It's all them versus you, man. I get five more minutes. (laughs) All right. So, look at 1 John. I I am going to take five minutes here. That's it. Just five. 1 John 1.19. John is dealing with people who leave the fellowship. Okay. And here's what he says. They went out from us, but they were not of us. For if they had been of us, they would have continued with us, but they went out that it might become plain that they all are not of us. No, you read the context here, and what John is arguing is there are people who attach to Christianity. This is very similar to Hebrews 6, and I don't have time to do Hebrews 6. In fact, we did a whole Eddie did a whole message in Theology Untangled where he says, Does Hebrews 6 teach you can lose your salvation? It's on the website, Theology Untangled series. Eddie preached it. Hebrews 6 talks about tasting of the Holy Spirit and 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 knowing the power of the word, but then falling away. And it's the same thing here. There are people who come so close to Christianity and they even superficially, outwardly bear fruit. And some of them, shiny fruit. Where you're like, man, look at that. Look at all they're doing for the kingdom of God. They're on fire. And then time reveals the truth. They go out from us because the truth is, they were never of us. And you say, wait a minute, you got one verse, man. No, I don't. So this is a parable in Luke 8, a very famous parable. It's called the parable of the soils or the parable of the sowers, depending on how you're viewing it. I think it's more about the soils than it is the sower, because all the sower's doing is sharing the gospel and it's in the form of seed. You remember this parable? How many of you know it? All right, well, let's look at it in this context. And when a great crowd was gathered and people from town after town came to him, he said in a parable, a sower went out to sow his seed. A sower is a farmer. And as he sowed, some seed fell along the path that was trampled underfoot. That means it it was hard. It was walked on enough that the brush was cleared, there was no vegetation, and it's packed down. Much like walking paths or dirt bike paths or pedal bike paths, you've been in the woods, you've been on paths. These are paths in between uh, rows of vegetables and wheat and things they would grow in the first century. Okay? So, trampled underfoot and the birds of the air devoured it. So first seed falls on a hard path and birds eat the seed. And some fell on the rock. And as it grew up, it withered away because it had no moisture. Now, the idea here is the rock is is like a rock bed under the ground, and there's a little bit of soil. And so what happens is the root goes down, but instead of it going down deep to give the plant power and support to go up, the roots go down and they go sideways. And so it doesn't have the depth, and it can't go down into the, the watery, rich soil. And so what happens? It grew up and it withered away because it had no moisture. The root couldn't go down into that good soil because it just went sideways because as it growed down, it met rock and went this way. And some fell among thorns and the thorns grew up with it and choked it, strangled by thorns. Verse 8, And some fell into good soil and it grew and yielded a hundredfold. Now, If one seed produces a hundredfold, imagine that kind of increase on your investments. But isn't that interesting? That's what corn does. Get one kernel of corn and then it grows a stalk that then grows whole ears of corn with hundreds of little. That's what seed does when it's in good soil. And it grew and yielded a hundredfold. And as he said these things, he called out, he who has ears to hear, let him hear says he called out. But then he walks away. Strange. And when his disciples asked him what this parable meant, he said, to you it has been given to know the secrets of the kingdom of God, but for others they're in parables. Did you ever notice that? Mic drop after the parable, but only to his disciples does he unpack it. He's not unpacking it to the whole crowd. And he actually says he's fulfilling the prophecy in Isaiah 6. So that, quote, seeing they may not see and hearing they may not understand. That was Isaiah's commission, to go and speak to a people who would see but not see and hear but not understand. It's a judgment. So get the picture. If you were following hard after Christ in this story, you were a disciple. Did you get the insight? Yes, you did. Because he explains it to the disciples. But if you're just kind of hanging around on the outskirts, just trying to see what's going on. I heard about this guy. He's a miracle worker, right? He's giving out free food. You don't get the explanation. Only those who come after him and follow him intently his disciples does he explain now he explains the parable now the parable is this to the disciples the seed is the word of god word gospel the seed is the gospel the ones along the path are those who have heard then the devil comes and takes away the word from their hearts so that they may not believe and be saved did you know that when the gospel is shared there is spiritual warfare just because it's invisible does not mean it's not happening. The devil is into snatching the gospel from people. And he has many tactics and methods. And so the first one, the birds represent Satan and demons. And they come and they snatch the gospel away. So that, what's the result? They are not saved. See that? Verse 13, and the ones on the rock are those who, when they hear the word, receive it with joy. Yes, I love Jesus. Both hands up in worship. You, you, you'd elbow your friend next to you. Look at them, they're on fire. With joy. But what happens? But these have no root They believe for a while. Now, a while could be a long while. There are people who believe for sometimes decades and then they stop believing. There are people who believe for months and they stop believing. There are people who make a profession at a large gathering and then they go home and they live practically like they never made a profession at all. They believe for a while, an undetermined while. Could be a long time, could be a short time. And in time, but in the time of testing, testing and temptation are often interchangeable. Temptation is always from Satan. Testing is always from God. God does test his people. And sometimes he does it by using Satan's temptations. Satan has asked to sift you like wheat, Peter, but I've prayed for you that your faith would not fail. And when Jesus prays for you, your prayers get, his prayers get answered, friends. But notice that when Satan asked to sift Peter like wheat, God wasn't like, who do you think you are, Satan? You can't touch my children. No, he let him sift them. When Satan asked to sift Job like wheat, did God say no? No, he said, go ahead. But see, he gives sustaining grace to his saints. And when they are tested, you know what? They come through the test, refined, with dross removed, more mature, gone deeper with God. Saints get tested and they make it through. Unbelievers who look like believers get tested, they don't make it through. They go out from us because they were never of us they're going out from us, proves that they were never of us. In other words, if they are of us, if they are believers, they will remain. Hope is this. If someone's breathing, they could still be saved. And so for people who have walked away, I still have hope for them, that they could still come back to Christ. If they're alive, there's an opportunity to believe. And so we continue to share the gospel with them. All right, let's continue. And as for for what fell among thorns, they are those who hear, but as they go on their way, they are choked by the cares and riches and pleasures of life. And isn't life full of cares and pleasures? And there's some riches sometimes. Now, none of those are bad. We all experience those. But in this case, those three things choke the salvation out of the person. And their fruit does not mature. As for that, in the good soil, they are those who, hearing the word, hold it fast. Look at this. In an honest and good heart, I will remove your heart of stone, and I will give you a heart of flesh. You were dead in your trespasses, but God made you alive and forgiven you all your sins. A good heart. Who makes a good heart? Only God. No one has a good heart. Only God can take out the evil heart and put in a good one. And it bears fruit, I love it, with patience. Man, you do need some patience to grow, don't you? Years and falling on your face and getting back up and repenting again and again and again and again. And with patience, fruit is born. Now, friends, you realize that out of the four... Three of them looked saved. How many were actually saved? That's your answer. It's not that anyone loses their salvation. It's that they simply look like they had it and didn't. And time will tell. There is a doctrine, a theological category called perseverance of the saints. And what that means is... Those who are truly saints will persevere to the end, to glorification. Why? Because from the beginning, they were foreknown. Because they were foreknown, they were predestined. Because they were predestined, they were called. And because they were called, they exercised faith and were justified. And the justification gets them all the way to glorification. You cannot break that chain in that text. And so, a hermeneutical rule is you always interpret unclear texts by clear text. You never interpret the unclear ones on their unclearness. (laughs) If something's unclear, you take a very clear one and say, okay, this is clear, that's a little fuzzy, I'm going with the clear, and there has to be an answer for why this is fuzzy. And upon digging, you see, okay... I see. Romans 8, 29, and 30 is real. It's true. It's consistent with the rest of Scripture. I took more than five minutes. I hope that was worth it. I hope that was helpful to you. Okay. Just so you know, I'm tempted to take another five. I really want to keep going, but I cannot and I shall not. Okay, Friends, we owe, we owe God everything. This Text here shows that we are just agents, passive agents of God's grace. We are the ones whom God is acting upon. He's choosing to have a relationship with you before the foundation of the world, He's choosing to predetermine your destiny. He's choosing to call you in time and space to Himself. He gives you the gift of faith, and because of faith, you are justified. You are not guilty anymore. Why? Because Jesus' not-guiltiness is credited to you. And because you have the not-guiltiness of Jesus as a gift, you can stand before God on judgment day, and He can say, well done, good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of your master. Glorification. Now, friends, how should we respond to our unbelievers? We should share the gospel. We should have hope that they are these ones who are foreknown, predestined, called, and will be glorified. We should imagine that every person that we come in contact with is elect. That's how we should treat everybody. Believe that they are the the chosen, the, the elect. They will believe in time and we share the gospel. That's how we are to respond to people. We can have hope for those who have walked away that if they're still alive, God can really call them. They can truly believe. Now, how does God accomplish all this by the person and work of Jesus? His body broken, his blood shed. This is why we take communion. We rehearse and re-say the gospel every week. As often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes.